0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Last summer, amid the protests demanding police reform following the death of George Floyd, we spoke with Darlene McDonald, chair of the Utah Black Roundtable and a member of the then newly created Salt Lake City Commission on Racial Equity and Policing. Uh, She said at the time, once the protests end and the streets become quiet, it's imperative we not lose focus. We must redefine a new normal in policing. Today, we're checking back in with Darlene McDonald. We'll. Talk about systemic racism, police reform, see what's happening at the legislature and at the commission as well. You're welcome to join this conversation at upraccess@gmail.com. at gmail.com, at uh, gmail.com. Darlene McDonald, welcome back to the program.
1: Uh, thank you for having me.
0: Appreciate you uh, joining us. Uh, so I just want to read this from this from the website of the Utah Black Roundtable. Uh, it's time for everyone to begin asking themselves difficult questions. It's time to have a difficult, uh, difficult conversations about what uh, policing should look like and why uh, policing in uh, communities of color looks significantly different than it does in white communities. Uh, as we talked uh, last summer, of course, amid the uh, the, the protests, uh, it seemed like that it was it was top of mind. People were having those conversations, and uh, yeah. pe- people in the street, obviously. Uh, in the succeeding months, what, uh, what are you putting your finger on the pulse of what people are thinking? Or Have the vast majority of people moved on, or are people still thinking about this?
1: I don't believe people have moved on because almost every day we have instances that occur that remind us that we have come far, but we still have a long way to go. I am very encouraged, especially by the work that we're doing here in Salt Lake City and a lot of the bills that have been presented on the Hill for this legislative session that many of our legislators have heard. They were, many of them were also right there with us throughout the summer, engaged in the protest, listening, understanding, feeling the need that change needed to occur and you see that it is reflected in the many bills that have been presented by many different legislators so that is very encouraging at the same time we still have a long way to go a lot of education that still needs to be done and some people we need to have other people that are just willing to to listen and understand the issues
0: at hand. I noticed uh, the, uh, I went to the uh, website of uh, the, the the commission, right? Yeah. Um, and it looked like they were, um, they were having a, a listening session. Uh, yes. And I, I guess this is part of the work of the commission, uh, listening sessions. Uh, so, so I guess just uh, hearing from, from folks and, and their experiences.
1: Yes. Yes, and that's and that's very encouraging in a sense that one of the things that we promised when we began the the um, commission was that we were going to be transparent. and we wanted we can't we couldn't assume that people were going to just automatically trust us. Trust must be earned. And the one way to earn that trust is through transparency and being open and honest with people. As I've always said to members of the activist community is that we are no different than you are because we are you. We are the ones that have been out there with you, marching with you, crying with you, holding hands with you. So we are you. So there wasn't some sort of hidden agenda. You know, we were members, we are members of the impacted communities, and we are members of the public and the activist communities that are there in trying to make change.
0: You mentioned out there with, with, we are with you, you said, uh, out there crying with you, and you did see that, right? And, and the protests seem to be uh, people of all races. Um, and yet... There, There is still a, I don't know what the percentage is, but a, a, a portion of the population who believes there is no systemic racism in, in policing, that these are just a few bad apples. What would you say to them?
1: Turn the channel. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you you see what you want to see, many of us live in a bubble, right? And if you live in a bubble, you see what you want to see. We have to step outside our bubbles. And we have to talk to people who may look different than us, who may worship differently than we do, who may love differently than we do. You have to step outside your bubble. And then you have to see people. You know, not just see what you want to see. You have to actually see people and then listen to them and trust and believe what they are saying. This is a 400-year problem. This didn't just start yesterday. There's a whole history of policing that's out there. Our wonderful facilitator, Dante, that's part of the landing group, When we started, the the commission and Langdon Group came on board to be the facilitators. Dante shared this phenomenal um, video explaining the history of policing. That's what we need people to see and understand, that there is a whole history here that is rooted in racism and rooted in slavery. That's where it comes from. And once you understand the history and how we got here and why it hasn't changed, then we can move and step forward because it's real. This is not just some bad apples. And as we, you, this is, I know that we live in Utah, but one of the things that we just saw, what, last week was in Texas, right? And Texas had the, the energy problem, and the snowstorm, and people lost their power. And one young 18-year-old black man gets pulled over for walking home from work. Um, because and he's walking in the street with bags in his hand because the sidewalk has ice and snow on it. In the middle of a snowstorm, he gets pulled over and charged with pedestrian walking in the street. Who knew that that was a crime in the middle of a snowstorm? So, these things like this happen in over policing in black communities and seeing people as criminals before you see them as human beings. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that we have to get to and get to the root of those types of issues.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, how do we bridge those differences in experience, I guess my next question, because you know, uh, for people of color, long experience with this, right? You just, you just know you've yeah. had experience. For, for other communities uh, they're not having these experiences um, and so though perhaps well-meaning wanting to be allies, they, they perhaps just don't get it, don't understand
1: At this point It it really it, it becomes a personal journey. It becomes you taking you being an individual, and I'm I'm saying that in a generic sense, saying you know what, hundreds and thousands of people cannot be lying about this issue. This is a real issue. What do I need to do to fully understand this conversation? Because You have the 1960s movement, you have the 80s movement, and you have where we are right now, where we can really put forth what what began, I'm going to say the 60s, even though it went further than that, but what we equate as the civil rights movement in the 50s and the 60s that went on into the 70s. But where we are right now, we're having some of the same conversations that we had in the 60s. Why is that? Why have we not progressed further? And as a white individual or even someone who is just haven't had that lived experience, whether they're white or not, and just doesn't quite fully understand the experience, Pay attention, sit down, listen to the people who are explaining and talking about this, that this is real. This is something that happens to communities of color as being over-policed, as being seen as a criminal before they're seen as a human being. And then that, from that, then policing and how they're going to be policed, whether it's going to be as protective served, or is it going to be this is somebody I need to be aggressive with, take to jail because this is a criminal that's standing in front of me rather than someone just trying to get home? That's how we start to actually have change in this country and within each individual community.
0: Hmm. Um, how much of this, it, how much progress can we make in uh, police reform? Um, separate from, I guess, the the broader society and the broader community. In other words, what I'm getting to is, you know, if there's if there's systemic racism in society, then then that, that that's going to have to be tackled, right in order to make yes. progress on police reform or any other uh, area.
1: Yes, I mean systemic racism within our institutions. We have systemic racial, racism even within the financial institution. For instance, there was a a story that came out just last week where I believe it was in California, you have a black couple that asked a white friend of theirs to to basically pretend that they were them. (laughs) And when the appraiser came to the house, the appraiser thought that the white lady owned the home And the house was appraised for $500,000 more than if the black couple had been home when the appraiser showed up. This is systemic racism within our financial institution. This goes back to the issue of black wealth and personal wealth, which is also tied into our education system because Education, how we pay for education, public education, is tied into property value. So if you're paying for schools and public education based on how much you're paying in property taxes and you're constantly getting a devaluation of your property, then the education system in predominantly black neighborhoods is not going to be the same as the education system in the white neighborhoods. So all of this ties in to personal wealth and what you can actually uh, inherit from your parents and grandparents if they don't own that personal wealth because there's this devaluation of property. This is something that the incoming administration is actually going to tackle. At least it was something that has been put forth by the new presidential administration to take a look at some of these things. Because it's real. And then from that, you have the election system, exactly voter suppression. We don't necessarily have that here in Utah, per se, because we do have uh, mail-in voting. And we've had it, I believe, since 2015. But what we need to do here in Utah is really instilling people that your vote matters. Every single vote matters and it is important for you when you get that ballot you fill it out you mail it in every single neighborhood every single one even the ones that the most of the politicians won't go into those neighborhoods as well to make sure that everyone knows their votes matter so as addressing systemic racism within our financial financial institutions within our education within voter suppression and then we can talk about the co- police reform as well, so that we're not seeing people of color as criminals first.
0: I'm glad you brought up uh, voting, voting rights, voter suppression. Uh, I, I was going to go there um, and maybe have you elaborate on this, um, because we we uh, we saw this play out, um, you know, just uh, just with this last election, and yeah. uh, and what and people have been pointing out that. Uh, where President Trump is is sort of uh, pointing the finger is uh, tends to be uh, urban areas, uh, places where a lot of people of color are, are voting.
1: Yes, yeah. Th- this is something that speaks to the core, really, of who Darlene McDonald is. <laughs> I I actually just wrote a le- eleven page paper on this very issue how voter suppression, all of it is tied into citizenship and what happened in this past election, the storming of the Capitol on January 6th, how all of that is tied into the black vote. When you have the Civil Rights Amendment, the amendments, the 13th and the 14th and the 15th Amendment that came after the end of the Civil War in Even granting the new freedmen—they were not called African Americans at that point—but the new freedmen was, was given the right to citizenship with the 14th Amendment, and then from the 15th Amendment, the right to vote. That has always been an issue, especially with the continuation of white supremacy. And being able to actually decide and choose the leaders, there's a quote, and, and I won't say the quote here, but there's a quote from the gentleman that killed Emmett Till and what he felt about the black vote. There have been studies that have been done that ties together um, lynching in predominantly um, black areas and black counties in the south, is tied to the disenfranchisement of black voters. So where there was a higher lynching in those counties, the voter registrations were lower. You have the Mississippi Free, who were lynched, um, just trying to register black people in the south to vote. And this, this happened in Mississippi. So when you, when you have the storming of the Capitol and this allegation of an election that was stolen, this is not new. This, is, this goes way back, even way back to 1870 when the very first African-American man, Thomas Mundy Peterson, I believe his last name was, cast his ballot in 1870 right after the 15th Amendment was ratified. He cast his ballot, the very first man, black man, in New Jersey, and a white man saw him vote, and he tore up his own ballot because he he felt that as long as a black man could become enfranchised and vote, then there was no use to voting. He tore up his ballot. So this is as old as the Constitution, the black vote. And when Donald Trump attacked the predominantly black cities of Detroit, Philadelphia, Atlanta, Milwaukee, there was purpose in that. If you listen to the tape of his conversation with the secretary of state in Georgia, the secretary of state in Georgia said, you know, you can go into Cobb County and check the signatures in Cobb County. And Donald Trump told him We didn't want Cobb County. We wanted Fulton County, and you would not give us Fulton County. Why is that? Fulton County is predominantly black. Cobb County is predominantly white. He did not want to touch the white vote. He went after the black vote. And if you listen to or if you read the transcript from his speech on January 6th, he mentioned Detroit like— 18, eight, about 12 times, I actually counted it, but I don't have it in my head right now. He mentioned Detroit, Fulton County, Philadelphia, and then he kept saying the words, your country, our country, we're going to take back our country. They stole this election from us. It was very incinerary, insightful, If people feel like, Those people did not have the right to vote, did not have the right to take our election and our country from us. All of it is tied into this historical disenfranchisement of black voters. And that is the root of the problem of why we're here right now, especially as it relates to what happened on January 6th and then addressing tying all of that into police reform, addressing systemic racism within our system because even when you think about and look at who was some of the people not all but a lot of the people who stormed the Capitol were current informal law enforcement current informal members of the military there's a problem there that must be looked at and addressed
0: Hmm. before we return to the police reform I want to follow up again here. You, you part of what uh, part of what society is dealing with at this point is the appeal, the, the very obvious appeal in some circles of uh, of this idea of white grievance, that uh, that uh, hey now that <laughs> whites are now being being oppressed, right, and uh, we, we and let's just put all this racism stuff behind us. And and move on. You hear appeals for unity, right? And appeal. Let's let's just put all this behind us. Um, I, I wonder. And I guess connecting this with uh, with uh, you know voting rights. Um, uh, what we're seeing in the news reports is um, some Republicans uh, advocating for further uh, voting reform. Attacking voter fraud. Um, what some who oppose that would could see as thinly-veiled uh, voter suppression. I, I guess my question is, uh, all of this, <laughs> does this redouble your determination, or does this depress you in a, in a sense? that it, it seems like, uh, I don't know, one step forward, two steps back in some cases.
1: Yes, it, it feels that way, but we have to have honest conversations about what's really going on. And if when you think about after reconstruction right after the civil war we, we had this period of reconstruction where we really thought it was a kumbaya moment and for a moment it was it was a kumbaya moment but then the in order to appease the south the north made some concessions and said okay we're going to pull the truth because at that time right after the civil war there were still Union soldiers in the South to make sure that the new freedmen were able to integrate into the southern states that formerly owned slaves, and it wasn't going to be this period of, of violence, right? So this went on for several years, but as a concession, the North did finally pull their troops out, and that led to the, the Jim Crow laws, that in the segregation that went in the lynching that happened in the, the formation of the KKK. This whole idea of, of unity, yes, it's great, and we want to unify, but let's be honest about what we're really asking for. You're not going to have unity if there isn't an understanding and, and honesty of the issue and what needs to be solved. We can't repeat the mistake of reconstruction like right now and say, okay, we're going to forget about what happened on January 6th. It was bad. Let's just move on. Let's unify. That's that's basically a cop-out. That means we don't want to actually look in the mirror and see the ugliness for what it is. We just want to just ignore it, move on, and everybody's good. No, everybody's not good. We're going to be right back here in four years. And the same thing is not, going to happen if we don't take some honest and real hard solutions to this problem and address it. White supremacists and white supremacy crime, hate crimes is on, are on the rise. They're not coming down. They're on the rise. And if you listen to the, the confirmation hearing yesterday of the incoming Attorney General Merrick Garland, that's one of the things that he said that it was going to be top of mind for him. He was going to address the what happened on January 6th, but also the rise of hate crimes. And it's not just against black people. It, against many marginalized communities, there's a lot of anti-cinematism. Um, I know I said that incorrectly. Forgive me. <laughs> there's also You also have to look at the crimes against Asian Americans because of this Racism as a result of the coronavirus and the pandemic and calling it the, the racist slur that the previous administration called it led to an attack of Asian Americans. So all of this, we, we have to just, as the saying goes, love thy neighbor, <laughs> you know, and treat each other as we would want to be treated. But we also have to be honest about racism and white supremacy and call it out for what it is even within our elected officials and like look we cannot move forward until we deal with this america this with what 400 and some odd years old now something like that we have got to we've got to address this and be honest about the conversations of race, race conversations in this country. But to your point about the voting, after the November 20, um, 2020 election, 33 states, 33 states have introduced or filed bills, 165 bills, to restrict voting access. Uh, 33 states have done that since the November 2020 election. Voter fraud is, is not... It's incorrect to actually say there's no voter there's no voter fraud. Nobody's ever committed voter fraud. That's where a lot of Democrats made their mistake. Yes, there have been someone who voted who probably should not have voted. But on a scale of what it was like a hundred and fifty something million people voted in this last election. There may have been maybe a thousand. People that probably voted that should not have voted. Usually when that occurred, there are people who did not realize that they couldn't vote. That's usually what happens when you have voter fraud in that sense. They maybe they were ex felons and or felon and didn't realize that as a felon they couldn't vote in that particular state. In Utah, felons can ex felons can vote. If you go to, I think Georgia I think Georgia is one of the states. Don't quote me on that, but I think if you go to a state like that doesn't allow felons to vote, and a felon register and vote, that's voter fraud. Same thing like in, in Florida, even though they passed a the law that felons can vote, and then Ron DeSantis put a poll tax on it. So these are the types of things that are happening.
0: Uh, by the way, uh, the uh, National Democrats have uh, mentioned, or I guess, you know, grassroots, and uh, I think I've heard some elected officials talk about this, uh, of a need for a desire to uh, try to pass an updated national voting rights law. Yes,
1: yes. very needed. Very, very needed. It, the Supreme Court vote, um, gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, I believe it was in 2015. And basically, and if you remember that that ruling in the dissent from um, the wonderful Lee RBG, when she said, you don't throw away your umbrella just because it stopped raining. As soon as the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, Texas was in Georgia. I believe it was Texas. Texas was one of the very first states... To start implementing all of these new voting restrictions, followed by Georgia, many, of, many of, of these southern states that want to disenfranchise voters to maintain power implemented very restrictive voting access, access to the polls so that they can keep people from voting. I mean, that's just the bottom line. I mean, if you can't persuade people through policy, then you keep them from voting. One of the things that Georgia is doing as a result of this um, past election is trying to get rid of the Sunday souls to the polls. Now, why is that important? The black church is big and everywhere, Um, but the black church has Sunday's Sold to the polls. It's a big thing. They go to church, after church, they have their church gear on, they march to the polls, and they vote. Very big. So Georgia wants to take it away, because that's how many African Americans vote. They want to restrict um, early voting. Why is that important? Well, because we have... For some reason, we can put a man on the moon, but we won't make it easier to vote. Early voting is – election day is on a Tuesday, and people – most people don't get off work um, to go vote. So early voting for normal, working, everyday Americans, they, that's how they vote. Well, you had record numbers of people who, early, who voted early in this last election. So that's one of the very first things that they're going to try to take away. Early voting access, um, mail-in ballots they want to take away. These are things that have actually had typically been very popular with conservatives, especially mail-in voting, especially older populations have taken advantage of mail-in voting. But after it was attacked. In this last election, you saw that those numbers decline. And many Democrats actually took advantage of the early voting and mail-in ballots. You had a pandemic um, that occurred as well. So there was a shift in who actually took advantage of mail-in ballots as a result of this last election and the pandemic. So we we, we got to address all of these things. And I do agree that we need a new, stronger now voting rights act. It was also something that was mentioned in um, Donald Trump's speech on January 6th. It didn't get a lot of media play um, because he said a bunch of other incendiary things. But he also talked about voter suppression in that speech.
0: Yeah, uh, there there was a lot in there, and and some of it gets more play than others, right? Um, So, yeah, I appreciate you addressing all all of this. Um, By the way, we are uh, an interesting discussion here. We've neglected to take a break. So, let's do that now, and uh, we'll come back with more. We're talking with Darlene McDonald. Uh, She is chair of the Utah Black Roundtable and a member of the Salt Lake City Commission on Racial Equity and Policing. Uh, We'll have more following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah Today. Uh, I'm Tom Williams. Uh, my guest for the hour today is uh, Darlene McDonald. She's chair of the Utah Black Table and member of the Salt Lake City Commission on Racial Equity and Policing. We're talking about uh, police reform. Uh, we we talked there about uh, society in general, uh, systemic racism, and uh, voting rights as well, uh, related topics, obviously all of this. Uh, you're welcome to join this conversation as well UPR access at gmail.com upr at gmail.com so Natalie McDonald before we get into some specific measures there's some bills at the legislature I talk a little bit more about the uh, commission um, uh, maybe I'm hitting this too hard but it it, it just uh, strikes me when we talk about this uh, this this there's a gulf in experience and it um, you know not that it's uh, the, the duty of every person of color to educate their They're white friends, right? Um, But um, I'm remembering um, a conversation on this program I had. This was several years ago. I'd noticed an article in Politico or New York Times or something, a... um, uh, I can't remember her name. I, I apologize. Uh, she's a she's a, a black woman and, and she recounted a kind of a simple experience, um, you know, no death resulted or anything. But uh, she and her friends, these are middle class uh, African-Americans are on, uh, I don't know, in Long Island or somewhere on vacation. And uh, I can't remember even what happened, but something happened. And one of the younger members of the group said, hey, let's call the police. And the older members of the group said, uh, no, maybe let's not. <laughs> and then a discussion <laughs> ensued, right? And and so as, as a you know middle-aged white guy, this was very interesting to me and, and foreign to me, right? Uh, yeah. Because it, if I have a group of friends, something happens, we're going to call the police. But it, but it was interesting to me and it educated me a bit to, as to why they told this younger person not to do that. Um, and it, I guess what I'm going, going for is... Um, I suppose it 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 is helpful to, uh, you know, to to learn about these these things, even if you don't experience yeah. them yourself.
1: Yes, it's when you call, unfortunately for for African Americans, the way white people see the police and the way African Americans see the police are, are very different, vastly different. Think about Amy Cooper. Central Park, right? And that happened, I believe, last summer, when you have a black guy bird watching, guy just bird watching, and Amy Cooper decides she didn't want to put her dog on a leash, and even though the law, the, the ordinance said the dog should be on a leash, what did she do? She called the police, and she called the police in such a way she called the police on the black man in such a way that she knew that by doing so she could potentially get this man killed because the interaction between police with African Americans and the average white person is vastly different and she knew this when she made that call and that is true for, for me. If, I was to, if my son was having a mental health issue and I called the police, first of all, I would hesitate doing so. But the second thing that would come out of my mouth is, don't shoot my child. He's just having a mental health break or something to that effect. That still won't guarantee that he won't get shot. But we have to add that disclaimer because we understand that they're viewed as a threat first. And by the young friends saying, no, let's not call the police, simply because that could escalate really quickly. When you think about Tamir, Tamir Rice in Cleveland, the police rolled up. I mean, the, guy, I mean, the young what, 11-year-old outside playing with a gun, a toy gun. The police rolled up, got out of the car, asked the car, was still rolling, shot the kid dead. This is very different from what happens in white communities. So we know that. And and I don't know the story of what you are speaking of, but I, I guarantee you that the other people that said, no, don't call the police, this had to have been on their mind. It, it had to have been, because it would have been on mine. That's for sure. <laughs> it would have been on mine.
0: Yeah, as I recall the conversation, that that's exactly what the conversation ensued. You know, with the, between the older members of the group and the younger ones. Um, so, um, I, I guess uh, following up on that point, um, the, the uh, commission's having listening sessions, right? And you mentioned a facilitator. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah,
1: the facilitators have experience um, it, with this sort of um, commission. And they're helping to guide us, asking the right questions, getting the answers from the police department. Chief Brown has been excellent. And the officers that have been a part of this, that have joined, that we have been able to reach out to for information and to engage with, have also been very accommodating and understanding and very, very helpful. So I want the public to know that Chief Brown has been right there with us the whole time, so I want to give him that recognition as well. So they're taking this very seriously, so the facilitators are just that they are facilitators, and they have experience in this. they have been able to have guided conversations that are meaningful and purposeful and focused, and they have helped us with this process because we this is not what we do for a living, right. I'm in technology for a living. That's what I do. You have another young lady that's an attorney. You have business owners. You we're not facilitators. We're not police officers. We mean we don't know what we don't know. So they have been helped. They have helped us and helped guide this process as well in making sure that we ask the right questions. Mm.
0: I just want to mention a few uh, bills that are being run at the legislature and then have you comment on what you would like to see uh, uh, done, I guess, uh, you know, perfect world kind of a thing. Uh, So Senate Bill 13, sponsored by uh, Senator Iwamoto, uh, seeks to ensure a police officer can't skirt an internal investigation simply by jumping to a new police department. This was uh, based on experience, an actual uh, real-life experience where a former University of Utah police officer showed explicit photos of uh, slain student, Lauren McCluskey, to other officers. Um, and then I guess according to many departments' rules, once the par- the, the officer leaves that department, the, the investigation shut down. That officer was then hired by the Logan Police Department. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, Senate Bill 68, uh, Senator Buxton uh, would use $2 million in state funds to help uh, fund the purchase of technology and equipment for the Highway Patrol. that's uh, capable of counting and recording shots fired from a trooper's uh, gun that in- improved the data, I guess, in, uh, around officer-involved shootings. House Bill 264, sponsored by Representative Romero, would require police officers to file a report every time they point a firearm or a taser. Uh, at, at someone. Uh, are these the kinds of things you, you'd like to see happen? Is there is there, um, is there other legislation you'd like to see happen?
1: I think this is a good start. I, I'm i encouraged, but especially with um, the bill by Senator Iwamoto and making sure that um, police officers can't just jump to a different police department especially without any um closure or information regarding why they left the previous um department i, I that is yes <laughs> that's not the only time when that occurred i mean that has also occurred at on other cases as well because you don't want to keep hiring bad apples there are some really 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 good police officers out there who Who really believe in the job that they're doing and they want to do a good job let's also say that there are some bad apples out there and if there are bad apples out there you don't want them to just go from one police department to another police department without knowing what you're getting into and bring some of that bad experience with them I mean we we want to change policing in America and the only way to do that is to weed out the bad apples. If they left on their own, then they left on their own. But this isn't an anti-police thing. I mean, I personally am not anti-police. There are people out there who say, "Who get rid of the police. We don't, we don't need them, don't want them. That's not where most of us are coming from. We're not against the police. But we do need to have better policing and we need to have better policing in communities of color especially so that the experience of the police um, department of police officers of law enforcement can be equal with white americans as well as black americans as well as pacific islanders um any across the board so that if the police, if there's a police siren that goes off behind me, if I'm driving down the street, I'm not going to automatically clench up and see and think that maybe I didn't put my seatbelt on or a flat light or I mean a flat tire or a headlight being out is going to lead to a death sentence. A headlight, a busted headlight, should not be a death, a death sentence, but it has been in some cases. Not having a seatbelt has been. A flat tire getting into an accident has been a death sentence when engaged with a police officer because you're seen as as a criminal first. So, yes, these are some of the bills that I would like to see, especially with the crisis intervention um, and learning, especially with mental health. Police officers are not trained mental health professionals. They're not. So when when we talk about uh, reallocating funds for training, not necessarily train police officers to be mental health providers, but to recognize that you're looking at someone who may be autistic. My youngest son is autistic. But you're dealing with someone who will never be able to comply, never be able to comply. That's not a threat on anyone's life. He just can't comply because he's autistic. That should not be a death sentence for him. Hmm. It shouldn't be a death sentence for someone who's having a psychotic episode if they just need medication. And you can get someone there that's trained, a mental health professional that's trained to recognize those things and get that person the medication that they need so that they can live to see another day. Everyone can live to see another day. The officers go home to their families at night, as well as the person that's having the mental health episode who has people at home who loves them and want to see them get well and be productive members of society, but recognizing that we all have our own cost to bear and our own challenges. These are the things that we need to address, and they are addressing it with these bills. Uh,
0: I want to have you talk about uh, defund the police. You, you hear calls for this, yeah. Uh, so, yes. what what does that mean to you, and, and do you support it?
1: No, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't support it. I don't support the language behind it. It was not, in my opinion, well thought out. But it was, but. Many people, especially on the conservative side, latched onto that and say they want to send criminals into your neighborhood. No. Yes, there are people who will say, do you find the police? Like I said, I'm not personally one of those people. And the Utah Black Roundtable, when I was chair of the Utah Black Roundtable, that's not one of the things that they advocate for either. What they are saying is let's reallocate funds from the militarization of the police the police shouldn't have tanks okay i was st- the streets of salt lake city should not look like the streets of iraq it shouldn't look like afghanistan basically it shouldn't look like a war zone i, I shouldn't have to feel like i just stepped into the middle of world war 3 because we are protesting the injustices of police brutality, or we are protesting um, someone dying because they they were under someone's knee for eight minutes and 46 seconds. That doesn't mean that the streets become a war zone. So instead of spending millions of dollars on tanks, let's spend a few hundred thousand dollars of that budget in having critical um, critical incident training of employing more mental health professionals. That is what, de- in, in a broader sense, of defund the police actually means, but that entire phrase was not very well thought out, and I don't, no, I never supported it. So, and that's really what it meant.
0: Um, so we just have about two minutes left. Uh, I wanna just maybe get a, a takeaway from you. What uh, what would you have, uh, you know, when we talk about police reform, What what's the most important thing for people to focus on?
1: When you talk about police reform, what's the most important thing for people to focus on? Yes. It's not going to be an overnight change. It, it's not going to, things are not going to happen overnight. It's going to take time. People, we have to be patient. Even me, who want to see change and, and be, be able to not focus fear so much when my sons are out there and, and even if they're walking into a neighborhood you know that that's not going to be the end of their life you know because they're in a neighborhood that maybe only three or four of the black people lived in. Change don't happen every night. It, change doesn't happen every, overnight. It, it takes time. So just We all need to be patient but as we are being patient Let's be transparent and honest about what we're doing and actually put forth the effort for change. Doing nothing is not an option. It's not an option. Get to know someone who is different from you. If everyone in your immediate circle looks exactly like you in every single way, step outside of that bubble and meet someone who is different from you and learn their story, hear their story, understand their story. That That's the takeaway.
0: Well, uh, thank you so much. Uh, very interesting discussion. Uh, Darlene McDonald is uh, with the Utah Black Roundtable and a member of the Salt Lake City Commission on Racial Equity in Policing and has uh, joined us for the hour. Darlene McDonald, thank you so much. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Have a good
0: day. Yeah, you too. Have a good day. Um, we hope that you will be with us tomorrow. We're going to talk about mental health uh, during the pandemic. Uh, I think, uh, you know, what I'm sensing uh, is people are just tired, <laughs> tired, tired, tired of the pandemic. Uh, it's taken a toll on many things, including uh, including mental health. And so we're going to talk about um, mental health during the pandemic. And our guests will include uh, Professor Derek Tullofson who uh, will talk about resilience and uh, we'll, we'll discover other aspects of this as well. And that's tomorrow. I hope you join us then. Thanks for listening today.